Our scripture reading this morning comes from Acts chapter 14, verses 1 through 23. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted their voice, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priests of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd crying, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without a witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons and satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. But even with these words, they could scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city, and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. This is God's word. Amen. Thank you, Susan. Uh, so good morning. I uh, had a seminary professor who was was pretty pretty pithy and pretty witty. And one of the things that he used to say to us as all of us aspiring pastors in his classes, he would look at us and he would say, "You know, the problem with making your living from your faith is that you're bound to lose one or the other eventually." Uh, and, I, and I say that because I, I feel some of that this morning um, as we come to this text in Acts chapter 14 because I, I, was, uh, I was up early uh, this morning and um, 
just when you get up early on Sundays and you're a pastor, the, the thing you obviously do is kind of go back and start to look at your sermon. And I started to look at what I'd done, and I thought, I really don't like this sermon very much. And so that just doesn't bode well for you this morning, I guess, when the pastor doesn't like it. Uh, and the reason uh, that I don't like it is because it's hard, and it feel, I, I went back and I took some things out because I felt like, you know, I'm just yelling. I'm yelling at them. And I want you to know if it feels like I'm yelling at you, I'm not. I'm really yelling at me uh, because I'm caught in a lot of ways here. Uh, and these things, these things are difficult and, and hard. And, um, and I want us to be a people that rest in the grace of Jesus and the gospel. You hear me? I mean, that really is what we're supposed to do, is to rest in the grace of the gospel and Jesus. But at the same time, um, I don't want us to, to settle in that either. Uh, and what you find here in Acts, I mean, you find some pretty, some pretty amazing things happening. And I don't think they're just neat stories for us to read. They really are showing us the way that that should be true of all of us who follow Jesus. And, I, and part of what the problem was is I've been reading a book by a big church pastor over the last few, few uh, days, and I, I'm usually put off by megachurches, to be honest with you. Uh, that's just my own thing. It's not that there's something inherently bad or wrong, but I've been so struck by the missional urgency of this church, and so just let me, you know, I want to ask, do you, do, you, um, do you have a mission? That's my question for us this morning, I guess. I should start there. And is your Christianity filled with missional urgency? Because, you know, or is it just somebody else's mission? That's what I really, is it the pastor's mission? You know, is it, is it somebody else's mission? Because what I see in a lot of places uh, in, in our church and in church in general is that in work or in family, uh, you know, work for men, family for women, you know, some measure of both of those for, for people, there is lots of energy in those areas. And the reason there's so much energy, people don't have to fight for energy there is because there's mission. There's, there's some tangible thing that's, that's a sense of this is what I'm here to do and so forth. But not in Christianity. A lot of times we lose our, our energy when it comes to Christianity. Now, I just wonder if it's because when it comes to, and I'm not using the word church, when it comes to our faith and what it means to live out our faith, I wonder if for many of us it feels like, well, that's somebody else's mission and I'm just kind of here to support and encourage and look on. And I really want to challenge that because I've been reading about this church and, um, and, and really been struck by the missional urgency of, of what the pastor's talking about. And it's because it's, it's, you know, it's really what you see here in, in Acts. And so there's just a couple things. He told stories like stories of hundreds of people selling their homes in their, in their city there where they, where they minister and, and relocating to other parts of the city and people getting together and looking at the most broken places of their city and saying to one another, let's go there and and live with one another there. Let's go there and start living the gospel community and caring for the needs of the people in places like that. And for us, that would be Inwood and Juanita and, and Janville Village. I mean, how else is this group of people in this room going to go to those places? It's not just going to happen. Somebody's going to have to say, some people are going to have to get together and say, let's, let's go. He, he, told, he told the story, they're located right in the middle of the Research Triangle in, New York, in, in uh, North Carolina. And so they're over, this will give you a... <laughs> This will give you a snapshot of the scope of their church. Over 2,000 college students attend their services on a weekend. And they are just planting churches everywhere. And so one of the things they do, they call it um, their, their, um, their Mormon, Mormon mandate. One of the things they do is they sit down with the college students that come to their church who are graduating, and they, just at, they, they ask them. They ask them to write them a blank check and to think about, you know, uh, think about spending the first two years on the other side of college involved in one of their church plants. In other words, to not accept uh, 
the job offer out of school that promises the best career path, but to relocate to where they can be the most benefit to the gospel mission they've been called to. And I just thought, that's such a, such a neat idea. And I, you know, I, do those things seem threatening to you? Or are they reasonable? Because to me, to be honest, for me, they're not only reasonable, they're a necessity. That these, the church really should be, um, it really should be going after things like this. So I, I, I was a little late this morning coming to church because uh, I went home after thinking about these things and I had to change out of my, my, um, my master's polo shirt because this didn't feel like the kind of sermon you could preach wearing a master's shirt. Now it's okay. It's, it's, completely, it's completely okay to come to church in a master's shirt. I'm not sure it's okay to preach, especially sermons like this, because I think there's something, there's something radical and self-sacrificing. You know, I, that's a joke, by the way. Don't, like, take that away and get all mad at me, okay? I, I, I'm just saying there, there's, something, there's something more here that I think we have to, we have to really make sense of. And, and what, what this produces, one more story in this book that I read, then I'll move on, and we'll actually talk about the Bible. Um, as he told the story of, uh, of one of the pastors that's a part of their team there being called to a meeting at the central office of the public school system there where they are, and he walks into this room, and they pull out this big map of, of the area, and they point it, they point it to different places, and, and they, they pointed out this one place on the map, and uh, they turned to this pastor, and they said, you know, does your church have any plans to plant a church here? Because the schools are failing there. And we don't know what else to do, and we were hoping that you could plant a church and that that church would adopt the schools because they've been so successful in other places. And so, you know, what, what strikes me is, is for one thing, Brandon has tried, and he can hardly get on school campuses in our city because uh, the school system doesn't want people of faith coming on the campus. But what if Polk County Schools saw us as a part of the solution to the problem of public education? That's how we should respond. The teachers in the room are saying amen. What if that was true? What if that was true? What if that, what if that was the kind of thing that we were going out? Now, you need to know, I'm a driven person, so, so I could just crush you. I could. I, I, I would just crush us with ambition. So I'm leaning on the, the liturgy of the service this morning that has always ta- already taken us through the gospel. But I, I, you know, I, I don't want to let us off the hook because I think what you see here in this text in, in Acts chapter 14 are two things, and you see it in your outline that I gave you. There is a, there's a missionary mandate that we have to make sense of here, and then there's also a missionary methodology that we're giving. And, given. And, and here's the way I want to say it to you this morning. Those two things mean for every single person in the room this morning, it matters that you're sent. And if you've been sent, then it matters how you go. It matters that you've been sent. And it matters how you go. And that's what I want to talk about from this text, if you would come there with me this morning. So let's just start with what I mean by that first thing, that it matters that you're sent. See, there's a crisis. There's a crisis of purpose and meaning in our culture. How often do you hear people talk about finding themselves? Do you know what a strange statement that is? I found myself. You were lost before? And, and, and that really is the case. For many, for many people, there's this crisis, uh, and that's where a lot of people live. So to not, to not know who you are, to not know why you're here, to not know what you're supposed to be doing with your life. And what happens is, is when you live there, it drains you of any kind of joy and purpose and meaning. You start showing up for life uh, when you don't know your why, when you don't know the why of your life. That's when you, when you lose yourself. For many of you, 
you know, I thought about so many of you this morning that are going through hard times and you've come and there's just these, these things in your life that are just bearing down upon your soul. And one of the things you got to know, when, when t- times get tough, when life gets hard, the thing that pushes you through that is to be deeply grounded in the sense of this is what God is doing, this is why I'm here, this is what he wants me to be and do. But we really are in the middle of a crisis in our culture of people who have lost themselves. And so the first thing the text teaches us is that we've not been thrown out into the world, we've been sent. Paul and Barnabas have been sent out from Antioch. That's what's happening here in chapter 14. And they're traveling around preaching, and, and basically they're church planting. So the whole, the whole missionary enterprise of Acts is really a church planting enterprise. And so we call this section of, of the scriptures Acts, in Acts Paul's first missionary journey. And so that's the context. And so a couple of thoughts there. First, I think we can learn from this that life is not chaos and disorder. Our lives are not random, meaningless things full of chance and coincidence. We've not been thrown into this chaotic world for no apparent reason, we've been sent. Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. And our culture is very skeptical about the idea of a God who is intimately involved in the day-to-day of our lives. But at the same time, it's ironic. We romanticize the idea of destiny. Those things, that we're very skeptical about the idea of a God who really is intimately involved, but we romanticize what we call destiny. And it's part of the formula of every romantic comedy, isn't it? So two kinds of stories you find all over our culture. The one is uh, either we, we, kind of, we kind of bounce back and forth. I had, um, I had illustrations for this, but the sermons are already too long, and so we're going to skip right through it. But two kinds of stories. Either there are, you know, there are forces that are trying to keep you from the life that will make you happy, and you've got to break free, and you've got to make your own destiny. You've got to shake your fist at the controlling realities of the universe and, and do it on your own. Or... Or, on the, then there's this whole other genre of story that on the other side, to find love and meaning, you've got to just let fate sweep you away and take you, let the universe take you wherever it wants to take you. And there's this interplay between these two things all the time. Well, which is it? And I think Christianity provides a really nice middle ground because Christianity says that there is a plan. I mean, Christians believe there is a plan. Job 14.5, we'll read, you know, next week or the week after, a man's days are determined The number of his months is with you, God. You have appointed his limits that he cannot pass. God has a plan. He has sovereignly ordained whatsoever comes to pass, but he is not malevolent. He's not trying to keep us from the things that will make us truly happy. He's not closing the doors on us that if we could walk through them, we'd finally find the life that we want. He's, in fact, working all things together for his glory and for our good. And so Christians courageously cling to the belief that life is not merely a series of meaningless accidents or coincidences, but rather a tapestry of events that culminate in an exquisite, sublime plan. But the plan is not as romantic and wispy and impersonal as our idea or notion of the universe or fate is. Rather, what we believe is that the plan that is unfolding around us is the will of a person, that there is one who has made us, with specific ends in mind, and we only find the life we want when we're doing the thing he's created us to do for the right reasons. We've been sent. That's the first thing from the text. And to be sent, uh, we believe that we've been sent by a person. I have a 16-year-old now. It's a scary thing for parents when kids turn 16. Maybe you with me? A 16-year-old, holy cow. 
And so one of the, one of the benefits, though, is we can send them to the grocery store to buy milk late at night when I'm too tired and lazy to go, and that is a glorious reality. But you'll know if you're a parent or if you're a, a teenager, if he's been sent to Publix for milk, then what's he there to do? Only buy milk. He doesn't get brownie points if he comes home with milk and cookies and ice cream and all that other kind of stuff, right? He's been sent, and he's been sent with a purpose. Get milk. Get back home as fast as you possibly can. Don't stop by a friend's house and talk for three hours. Don't, you know, do all these other kinds of things. You, if, so if you send, if you're sent, you're there. Wherever, you're, wherever you've been sent, you're there to do the will of the person who sent you. Right? That's what it means to be sent. It means wherever you are, you're there on purpose. You're there for a reason. And so if you've been sent, then you've got a mission. And I, I want to say there's so much silliness in our culture right now, and the silliness is filling up the space that the idea of calling used to occupy when we were not quite as irreligious and secular as we've become. Uh, the silliness is filling up the space. When you don't know why you're here, you start making stuff up because you're bored. But when you know you've been sent, you're constrained. And because you're constrained, you've got a reason for getting up in the morning. And so let me apply it to the church this morning, if you would. So let me talk to church people for just a minute. We've been sent. And if we've been sent, then we should be a sending church. And here's what I mean by that. That we should measure the success of our ministry not by the crowds that come in on Sundays, but by the people that we send out. We should be planting seeds of kingdom Seeds into kingdom fields, let's say, that have great potential but do very little to contribute to the bottom line of this organization. Our success should not be determined by how large we grow the storehouse, but by how, how widely we distribute gospel seeds. I mean, we have, been, we have been giving away leaders to Nicaragua, to church planting, and all of these things. We have given away money to initiatives like Life Choice and Heart for Winter Haven and so forth. And we, we've done it on purpose because, this is a little cheesy, so forgive me, but because... The church is not a cruise liner. You know what a cruise liner is, right? Get on the boat, it offers something for the whole family. You just hop on and everything's taken care of for you. Every need is met. They got childcare if you need that and all the food that you can eat. You never even have to leave the boat. Rather, the church is much more like an aircraft carrier. And the function of an aircraft carrier is to equip the planes for battle. The crew fuels and outfits the planes and sends them into battle, and they come back when they need more supplies. And that's really helpful. It's cheesy, but, but it is helpful for me because here's what you see here in Acts 14. The church at Antioch has sent Paul and Barnabas, this is chapter 13, out away from the church to Cyprus, 13.4, Perga, 13.13, Iconium here in 14, chapter, chapter 14, verse 1, Lystra in chapter 8. And so they're going from place to place because the mission is out there. The church is sending them out to these places where the gospel needs to go. And for us, those places are places like Thompson Nursery Road and Bartow and Davenport and so forth. All of these places where people uh, so desperately need to hear the gospel in our city and county. And I have to be honest with you, when I think about that, I have to admit that I've become complacent in some measure. And this is the part where I felt like I, I just needed to yell at me and not yell at you. It's really snuck up on me how easy it's become for me to just want to settle into the predictable, easy thing. And I remember uh, the, old, the old saying, I forget who said it, but uh, it said, if you want to convince men to build ships, don't pass out sh shipbuilding manuals and don't organize them into labor groups and then hand out wood. Just teach them to yearn for the vast and endless sea. 
When a man yearns for the sea, his lack of know-how will not keep him landbound for long. And so my problem, my problem is not a strategy problem, it's a desire problem. So I'm, I'm, I'm confessing to you this morning that I don't yearn to see God's glory spread over the whole earth enough to build whatever ships are required to take the gospel to those who need to hear it most. I'm not gripped by gospel realities and deep enough to be compelled to make the kinds of sacrifices you see being made here to see others come to know Jesus. Would you pray for me? I'll pray for you. That we would see God work at that level in our life. So you see, you see Paul and Barnabas on mission here. They're being sent. But there's something else on the macro level before we get, <clears throat> excuse me, to some of the, the details in the text. Uh, in 14.1, chapter 14, verse 1, I want you to see, we're told they come to Iconium and they enter the Jewish synagogue to speak. And it's the same in chapter 13, in Cyprus and Perga and the other places they went. Wherever they went, they were going into the synagogues. These are the Jewish, you know, churches, basically, to preach and teach among Jewish people and among converts to Judaism from the Greek, you know, the, the, the cultures around them. In other words, the bulk of their ministry to this point in Acts was to preach and teach among and evangelize religious people. Now, that's an interesting thing, isn't it? Because, you know, you would think religious people probably don't need to be evangelized. But what we learn from the text is that religious people need the gospel because religion and the gospel aren't the same thing. And I would tell you, just, just to kind of talk with you about where we are a little bit, we've really seen this in our church. There are a number of people over the years, lots of people who have started attending here at Redeemer, and they say things like, I've been in church all my life, but I've never heard the gospel. I didn't know the gospel. And so we've been a church who has had a ministry to religious people. And I think, honestly, it's where we're particularly strong. And it's a big part of what I feel called to because it's so much a part of my story. I feel a particular calling to gospelize what I would call, quote-unquote, church people because many times they need the gospel just as badly, if not more, than those with no church experience. You with me? But, but... But now something begins to change in Acts, and this is what I want you to see. From this point forward, Paul begins to take the gospel out into the unbelieving world. Up till now, he's been engaging with religious people, but now, beginning in verse 8, you look there, going to, to Lystra, to Lystra, he's turning over to irreligious people. And this presents a challenge to us as a church, too, because our world needs to hear and know the good news of Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't say, go to the church. He said, go into all the world, and we've been sent into the world to engage our unbelieving friends and neighbors with the gospel. And so my questions for you to think about maybe in community group later are, are you friends with people who don't share your faith? Are you strategically building, if you're a Christian, are you strategically building relationships with people outside of the church because you want to share the gospel with them? I, mean, I haven't been shaken by questions like this. And here, here's the reality. Only 20% of churches in America are growing. But get this, only 1% are growing by reaching unbelieving people. So 95% of the church growth that we celebrate in America is just reshuffling existing Christians from one church to a newer or better one. Only one out of 100 churches show, show any measurable effectiveness in reaching irreligious people. That's a huge problem. You with me? Which is why only 17% of our city is connected to a community of faith, and that number is declining steeply. There are about 100 churches in Winter Haven, give or take. Can Redeemer be the one that figures out how to do this? Man, I pray that. Years ago, uh, we planted, uh, you know, eight years ago. And, and years ago, close to one-third of the crowd on Sundays was nuns. Now, not nuns, you know, not the sweet little ladies nuns, but 
people of no religious affiliation. Uh, and if you were here, it was crazy in those days. We had kids like, like climbing stairs and doing all kinds of things because people had never been in church before. And people who were curious about faith and had been invited by a friend. And now that we've grown older, that number has gone way down. And that's why we want to keep planting churches. If you've not been to Redeemer Southwest, you should go. Uh, they're running about 80 people uh, now on Sundays. They took about 40 from us when they left. And so hear this, the other 40, about half of their crowd who are worshiping together on a weekly basis, almost exclusively half that crowd was not going to church anywhere before they started going there. Right? They're doing a great job. They're doing a great job. It's much harder work for a church like ours that's even eight years old, so we have to be intentional. But this is what we're here for. This is our mission. If you're a Christian, this is what I want to say to you this morning. Everything else is consumerism. Did you know? Did you know that there's an Islamic center here in Winter Haven? Did you know that? If you heard that the imam was doing a series on relationships and that he told really funny stories that helped you see how Allah was relevant to your life, would you go? If they added drums and a kicking electric guitar to their music, would, would that be the thing that got you there? You see? Maybe. But I would think for many of us, that's the divide between Christians and people who don't believe is just as great. And yet, what you see in the church is that the concerns that we raise when it comes to church are most often fueled by religious consumerism and not missional urgency. How did God bridge the distance, the divide between himself and us? He came. He came to us. And because he came to us, therefore we must go. So, that's all on the macro level. Well, let's get into the text a little bit. It matters that you that you're sent if you're a Christian, but it also it matters how you go. It matters that you've been sent. If you're here and you're going through a hard time, it, it matters in dealing with that hard time that you know that God has you there on purpose. It matters that you've been sent, but it also matters how you go. Now, I've spent way too much time at the beginning here, so let me get right to the point. And let me say, to be faithful, we have to be intentionally, strategically engaging people with no faith with the gospel for Christians. We have to be so excited about what Jesus has done for us and so excited about what he's doing in our church that we want everybody, everybody we know, and especially those with no church, to be a part of it. And the text shows us how to do this, actually. And there are six things. There are six things here, but I'm going to go really slowly, I promise. But here's slowly. Fa- I'm going to go really fast. Not slow. Not slow. I was just making sure you're awake there. And what I'm doing here is I'm trying to train you how, and me how to engage with non-Christians. But there are people in the room, teenagers and others, that are, aren't sure what they believe and on varying, you know, places on a spectrum of faith. And so as I'm training those of you who are Christians and who believe, I'm going to stop in the middle and I'm going to address skeptics and outright non-believers in the room, okay? That's how I'm going to do this. So as we go through this text and look what Paul does here. So first, so how do you begin to engage the unbelieving people around you? Well, I told you there are six things. And the first thing is a matter of mindset. And the first thing I would say is you you have to deal with the fear of man. You have to deal with your fear of man first. That's the first thing. Evangelism and popularity no longer go together. Did you, do you realize that? You aware of that? And you have to choose. As a culture, we are becoming increasingly secular and irreligious, and so to publicly claim to be a person of faith makes you weird. To do evangelism, though, to claim that your beliefs are right and other people's are wrong, and to, talk, and to actually talk about the idea of conversion, that makes you contemptible and probably even suspicious. And it's here in the text, when Paul helped 
and he healed the crippled man. Look here, the crowds rush in and treat him like he's a god. They bring him gifts, and they fall at his feet, and they worship him. Not because they believe, but because they're afraid, okay? They say in verse 12, the gods have come, come down to us, but their praise and their adulation is short-lived because this is the way it always is with crowds. These people here on their knees in front of Paul, you know, wanting to turn him into their god are the same ones who very shortly, and just a few verses later, take up stones to kill him. And the lesson is... The lesson is you'd be wise not to get caught up in flattery. You can't be living off the approval of others. If you do, you won't be able to deal with rejection. And if you're going to be an evangelist, you're going to face rejection. Fear of man is needing people so much you don't love them well. You can't risk their disapproval. You need them to just like you and for everything to be okay. And you have to deal with that because faithfulness, we're told very clearly, verse 22, faithfulness is a journey through many tribulations. That is what life is. Many tribulations. And there is no detour. The gospel is offensive. And so if the people in your life who don't believe like you do, if they only speak of you admiringly, if they just think you're the greatest thing, it's because you're not telling them the truth. You're not calling them to faith and away from their sins because that will get you in trouble. Are you willing to risk it? Are we willing to risk it? If not... If not, then what we have to reckon with, if you're not willing to risk people being upset with you because you speak the truth to them, reckon with the fact that it is more important to you to be liked than to do good to others. And that is the fear of man. So you have to deal with your fear of man. The second thing. So first, deal with your fear of man. Second, don't assume knowledge of Christian doctrine and vocabulary. Notice here in chapter 14 how different Paul's approach is he doesn't talk about sin and guilt. He doesn't use religious terminology. He doesn't quote the Bible to make an argument. All of the commentators pick up on this because his method is so different than it was in chapter 13, here in chapter 14, because in chapter 13, he's talking to religious people, and so he uses religious language and terminology. They were religious, and so he assumed a certain amount of knowledge and vocabulary on their part, but as you come to chapter 14, it's very different. I mean, how do you talk about sin with someone who doesn't believe in sin? What happens if you assume categories of right and wrong with a person who doesn't believe in any sense of right and wrong? What happens if you try to use the Bible to make your argument with a person who doesn't know the Bible and isn't even convinced that it should have any bearing on their lives? I mean, do you know? Are you, like, have, you ever, do you, have you ever like, stopped and think how, how weird, how strange we must sound to people with all of our Christianese, with all of the, the lingo and the terminology? I mean, it really must be strange. In fact... I don't know if you saw this, but I think, you ready, Kyle? I think uh, sometimes we must sound a little bit like this. Watch this. Bless his heart. I think he's backsliding. I think I saw him drink. Yeah, but in moderation. I just wasn't seeing much fruit. Yeah, he's going down a slippery slope. How's your heart, man? How's your heart? I'm just such a words guy. It was a total God thing. I'm blessed. I've been working on my testimony. Is that secular music? We're opening with a secular song tonight. Wait, is this a secular song? Isn't she secular? Which station's the fish? 104.3, the fish. Safe for the whole family. You know he's a believer. I think he's saved. I just pray you'd give him traveling mercies. Mm. Pray for all Tyler's unspokens. Mm. Echo that. Just really like to echo Tyler's prayer, Father. I just, I echo that echo of my echo of his echo. I really feel like I'm being released from this, you know? I'm trying to be relevant. I'm just trying to be in the world, not of it. Hey, do you want to join our small group? You want to join my D group? You want to join my cell group? Community group? Access group? Accountability group? Acts 27 group? Dude, 
He brought it. He brought the word. That service last night rocked me. They're pretty purpose-driven. Yeah, it's Seeker. Don't they do Seeker service there? I feel like he's gotten really watered down. I don't feel like he really teaches the word. There's just not enough meat, you know? Are they non-to-non? We have a great Wednesday night supper. Let's invite some dudes over and fellowship tonight. We're gonna have a sweet time of fellowshipping tonight. Dude, we had the sickest fellowship last night. We're going to extreme. Velocity. Ignite. Yeah, I'm going to ignite. The edge. The dive. The bridge. The ramp. Fire. Courageous. Passion. Echo. Reverb. Noise. Velocity. Drive. Elevate. Radiate. 722. 635. 419. Orange. Blue. Yellow. Green. Clear. <laughs> neon. Catalyst conference this year. I don't do that because I feel like it ruins my witness. Been struggling with that. I'm really wrestling with that. I'm wrestling with a doubt. Need someone to hold me accountable. I'm really trying to be intentional with her. I'm pursuing her for sure. I'm trying to guard her heart. Guard her heart though, bro. Will you hold me accountable to that? Yeah, well, bounce your ass. Bounce your ass. Dang it. Crap. Shoot. Sheesh. Frip. Darn it. What the H? Holy crap. Son of a beasting. Dude, he's really teeing me off. I'm gonna kick his A. Are you asking me right now? Not cool. I, I find that offensive. <laughs> if that offended you, I apologize. <laughs> but it is pretty funny. Are you aware of the way we sound at times? Years ago, I was in a discipleship group with a few guys. This is the very beginning of our church, and I, I can't remember how the question uh, the leader asked was worded, but it was something that had something to do with, well, what's your greatest struggle in sanctification? You know, how are you applying the gospel to your heart right now? And we kind of took turns going around uh, the room. We got to this guy that was new to the church, brand new to the idea of Christianity, and, and here's his opening line. <laughs> I'll never forget it for the rest of my life. He said, you know, the, I went to a strip club the other day. And literally, there were probably five or six of us in the, in the, uh, in the group, and literally everybody, you know, <laughs> I did one of those things right there. I went to a strip club the other day. Uh, and what happened is I watched the understanding of what I'm, I'm talking about come over that group because they realized, okay, there's somebody. Like, and I remember we were kind of talking. He was like, is that, is that a bad thing? Yeah, that's probably a bad thing. I, your wife may not want you to do that. You might think about not, you know, you may think about changing that behavior. And yet, there was just this, this awareness of, okay, we've entered a new territory here. And I watched, it was amazing to watch the group um, try to express themselves in new ways because they realized here's somebody who doesn't share the basic concepts of our faith, that we have to be careful how we say things. Uh, and it was, so, it was so clunky. Because if you strip all that Christianese stuff out of our lives, sometimes we don't really know how to say things without using the terminology. It was, it was so clunky. But I want to tell you, it was so beautiful. And so, you have to deal with your fear of man, and you, don't, you have to not assume knowledge of Christian doctrine and theology. But thirdly, I told you we try to get through these quick. Thirdly, you do have to presume knowledge of God, however. Now, what do I mean? Well, look in the, look in the text. Look at what Paul says in his address to the crowd. Chapter 14, verses 16 and 17, he says, In past generations, as he begins to speak to these people, Past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without a witness. Now, what does that mean? He says the same things in Romans 1. He says that skeptics, agnostics, atheists, they all, Romans 1, 18 through 20, suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes have been clearly perceived in the things that have been made. Now, this is important. The Apostle Paul is saying 
that people who claim to not believe in God, they are being dishonest with themselves. That deep down, they know he exists because he's made himself known to them. But what they're doing is they're suppressing that knowledge. Their problem, in other words, is not that they don't know if God exists. The problem is, is they don't want him to exist. But they go to the beach and they look out at the ocean or they gaze up in the stars at night and the stars scream the reality of God. And so they, they walk around with their ears plugged because they don't want to hear, they don't want to see because if God is really there, then he's in charge. And if he's in charge, then they're not. John Calvin said, God has sown a seed of religion into every man. And so let me, let me uh, encourage you, if you're, if you're a person of faith in the room, when you share your faith with people who don't believe it, you, uh, you're not starting from scratch. There is already a work that is, God has begun in every single human heart. So don't be cynical. Be hopeful even in the, the craziest cases. You're adding words to things that they've been thinking and feeling all their lives. They may get angry. They may pick a fight with you, but it's because there's a fight fight being waged in their hearts. So be bold and patient and kind. But let me also say to the non-Christians in the room, have you, I wonder, have you woken up to that truth yet or are you waking up to it? Is there, is there an absence in your life that you can't really explain? A restlessness? Use whatever word you want to. Maybe you're despairing. Maybe you're driven. Or maybe both. But do you know it's because there's something missing? You feel it, I think, don't you? I want to say that's right. There's something missing, and you've been made for God, and you won't ever find peace or purpose until you give your life to him. And that takes me to the next point, number five. I wish we could park there, but we've got to keep going. So fourth, what are the things I've said? You've got to deal with your fear of man. You've got to be careful not to assume knowledge of Christian doctrine and vocabulary, but do presume knowledge of God. And then fourth, you've got to work to uncover the heart. You see the crowds fall down at Paul and Barnabas' feet and begin to worship them as gods. This is exactly what Romans 1 says. We're all doing all the time. Unbelief is more than just denying that God is there. It's more sinister than that. We're constantly seeking to replace him, to use Paul's words, exchanging the truth of God for a lie and worshiping and serving created things rather than the creator. So in our passage, he says, we bring you, this is verse 15, we bring you good news. Guess what that word is? Gospel. That you should turn from these vain things, these idols, to the living God. So you have to uncover the heart. So here, let me talk to the non-Christians in the room again. Okay? And, or all of us to one degree or another. You may not feel like you're guilty and you need to be forgiven. Most people in our culture don't. But if you thought for longer than a few seconds, you would admit, I think, that you're enslaved. You've looked for life in all kinds of things. In relationships, success, and pleasure, all of us have. And all of us have come up empty. See, everything, everybody, everybody in the room, everybody lives for something. And whatever it is you're living for, that thing is your master. You're serving it. You're, you've given yourself to it. And if you're serving it, then you're not in control of your life. If you're living for love and romance, you don't control your life. You're controlled by the people you want to love you. If you're living for money, then you'll do whatever you have to do to get it and keep it. It's controlling you. We're all living for something. And if not God, then it's an idol. And that word, Paul says these are vain things. That word vain there means empty or insufficient or ineffective. In other words, idols that we give ourselves to promise fulfillment but leave you empty. They always take more from you. They take more from you than they actually give, but not, see, but not God. 
God is the only master that if you serve him, he will liberate you. The other gods are worthless. They take more than they give, but not the true God. Verse 15, the living God, he can satisfy you. He can fill up the emptiness. He can cause your restlessness to seek. Think. Think. Think if you turn yourself over to him. He is the only master that if you get him, he will never let you down. And if you fail him, he will forgive you. G.K. Chesterton uh, said one of my favorite, favorite lines uh, about this sort of thing. He said, every man who walks into a brothel is looking for God. Listen, friend, do you know that? Do you know that the problem in your life is not that God isn't there, but that you're constantly trying to replace him with other things, but he is the one you've been made for in all of your longing. He is the true longing of your heart, so turn to him. His arms are open wide to you. Fifth, we need to come to a close. The fifth thing you've got to do, and the fifth thing we need to do this morning for one another is we need to re-narrate life. What do I mean? Well, if you're not a Christian, well, how do you account for your life? Is it a series of random and unexplained, unconnected events that you're slogging your way through? Are you a self-made person? Whatever good there is in your life, you've made it happen. See, Christians, Christians have had to come to terms with this reality. For a Christian, and in reality, all of life instead, the good and the bad, is a gift that comes from a loving Heavenly Father. Listen to Paul again. He did good, he says, by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. For Christians, in reality, every good thing in life comes from God's hand. And it's God who's planning for our good and then doing good to us because he wants our lives to be filled with love and joy and purpose. The ancient gods, like Zeus and Hermes, were fickle. They were vain and easily offended. They would wipe a city out for sport or curse somebody for eternity because they were having a bad hair day. But the true God is unlike any other God. Any other God in the ancient world, any other God the world has ever known, he is generous and kind and self-sacrificing. I mean, everybody has ideas about what God is like, and usually they think that he's bloodthirsty and judgmental. So part of what you have to do is well, part of what we have to do is we have to unravel those mistaken assumptions about what God is like, and then you show that all of life is owing to his goodness. That's what Paul does. Do you see that? Paul doesn't talk about judgment with these people. He talks about God's kindness because it's when our hearts are melted by his kindness that we are led to repentance. And then lastly, let me just finish. Lastly, what you've got to do, and what we see here, what we see Paul and Barnabas doing here is you have to show that the gospel works. You see, how can you be sure about what I've said? How can you be sure that God... If you turn to him and give your life to him, will give you the joy your heart needs. How can you know that behind all the ups and downs, there is a good, good father? There's a hint in the text. Look at verse 11 again. The crowds rush out to Paul and Barnabas, and they say, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Now they're wrong, aren't they? Or are they? Because there is a God who's come down to us in human form, Jesus Christ who has come into the world to show the heart of the Father. And the good news of Christianity is that if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, your sins can be forgiven because he died on a cross to satisfy the debt of your sins. And in him, and in his resurrection, you can find the power that you need and the healing that you need. And in him, you find the master that you need. And rest in that. Rest in that good news this morning, church. But let's not become complacent because you see the world is perishing for lack of good news. And we are the carriers of good news so much skepticism and unbelief that we face in our culture. So why would people of no faith care at all about the things that we claim to be true? And I think the only reason would be if there is an authentication of the message. 
And at the beginning of the passage, we're told that God bore witness to the word of his grace. This is verse 3. By granting signs and wonders to be done by the hands of the apostles. So this whole scene in Lystra here is set up because Paul heals a crippled man. So it was the power of their lives that authenticated the truth of their words. It was the power of their lives that authenticated the truth of their words. Acts is the story of the church picking up the, mis- the message and the mission of Jesus, putting the power of the gospel on display through lives of supernatural power, love, and generosity to others. Acts shows us what is possible for the church to be in the power of the Holy Spirit. Because remember, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these he will do, because I am going to the Father, and whatever you ask in my name, I will do it so that the Father may be glorified. Amen? That's what's before us, so let's pray as we sing here at the end. Let's sing one another to faith in these songs. Father, as we do, put voice in music to the words of our hearts. Would you come and would you continue to make yourself known to us that you are indeed a good, good Father? That's who you are. Despite the circumstances that we walked out of and walking into the room this morning, we're loved by you. That's, that's who we are. That's what's true of our lives. And so all of us, as we gather in this room on different points in the spectrum of faith, would you come and would you continue to increase our faith, lead us to faith and repentance at the thought and the sight of your kindness that we might find in you, um, the fulfillment and meaning, desire and joy that, that is so absent from our lives so often. We are restless people. And we remember what the great saint said. We are restless. And the truth is that we will not find rest until we rest our hearts in you. But that is a work that your spirit must do. And so for all of us, I pray, come now as we sing together in these moments and work in just that way for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So now uh, the spirit sends us. And so as he sends us, remember, it matters that you've been sent. And because you've been sent, it matters that you go. So go with these words uh, ringing in your ears. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.